everybody to the world of Rex. My name is Marvel A. Rex. I've cut out the intro for now because if you want to know who I am, listen to the first, you know, 20 or so episodes of this podcast. You can also find me at Marvel A. Rex on all the socials. That's M-A-R-V-A-L-A-R-E-X. I am a renaissance person. I do many, many things, and I love spirituality, God, the occult, performance, art, all the things. And today, I'm going to talk about the weekly energy, and then we are going to speak with Rose, my friend Rose, who is a rabbi based out of London. So we're going to have an amazing conversation. Please stay tuned. And for now, we're going to look at the energies for the week of July 4th all the way to July 10th. So what's going on this week? If you're listening to this on a Monday, you're starting off bright and early with this energy. And if you're listening to this midweek, it's always good to think back to a couple of days that have passed already. July 4th. It's still a little bit of testy waters right now. One thing I wanted to say about this time of the year, every year, regardless of which hemisphere you're on, okay, so it doesn't matter if it's northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, midsummer or midwinter, this is a very important time. Because when you have what's considered a cardinal energy, which is cancer, this is the season of the crab, you have an initiatory energy. And for this energy specifically, it's emotionally initiatory. So what do I mean by that? So we've got a little bit of choppy waters precisely because right now is a time where emotions are being initiated. There are new experiments happening in the emotional realm. What does that look like? Well, this is often a time where someone suddenly feels different about something. You may feel different about something. You may feel something growing inside of you that's like, wow, I am ready for a change emotionally. Or I'm feeling something that is asking or catalyzing a change in the external realm. So this is totally normal. It's part of the energy between June 20th and July 20th of every single year. There is an initiatory quality to emotional realms. So this is a great time to be like, you know what? I'm quote unquote, like a great thing to do during this time. I actually just had this is why I'm laughing about it. When you have a moment where you're like, I'm sick and tired of dot, 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 fill in the blank, right? So you've reached a culminating moment with an emotional reality of your life that's manifesting physically because, you know, we, our internal-ness, our internal thingness is always manifesting externally, right? That's why we have to really watch our thoughts. We have to really watch our emotions. We have to audit. We have to pay attention to what's happening internally because it will manifest physically outside. This period of time is a wonderful time to feel like you're done with something and you want to try something new, especially as it pertains to the emotional realm. Now, the reason why family, family of origin, legacy, inheritance, heritage is associated with this time of the year is because often when we are having a culminating moment in the emotional realm, this is one where Freud's going to try to really get in here, our family comes up or at least the first 14 years of our life, our emotional conditioning comes up. You know, it's like we have to pass through all of the of the checkpoints to get to a new emotional realm. And all those checkpoints are, are located in the history of our body. So if you know this, going into this month, knowing that, okay, there will be some 
emotional transitions. There will be some letting go of old ways of doing and feeling new things and wanting to feel new things even. Even just desiring to not feel X or to, I really want to feel this in my life. I want to feel safe. I want to feel secure. I want security in, in this kind of form. I want love in this kind of form. Those are the beginning, the initiatory moments of like a new swath of emotional states and beingness, right? Now to pass, to get there, to get to those new spaces are the way that this reality works is that we are constantly brushing up against the past within us and without us, right? Outside of us. So this is a really great period of time to check in. Even though the waters are choppy, it's a great time to check in with yourself first and foremost around what do I feel emotionally done with and what do I feel emotionally yearning towards? What do I want that's new in the emotional realm? What needs to get like swept up out of the closet, bloop, 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 fix it up, make it pretty, right? That is good to know, right? And then the next step to know is that it's also going to bring up the moment you you put in a new, uh, in like in a, in a science experiment, you have controls. But then if you put in a new variable, which is a new emotion in this case, you're going to, the whole experiment's going to change, right? So your body is an experiment in a sense. Your psychospatialness, your bodyness is a spa- is a, an experiment. And the moment you introduce a new emotion or a new desire into your body, into your experience, your ephemerality, your phenomenological experience, right? The moment you introduce a new emotion into that phenomenological experience, everything changes. And you have to look at, okay, where do I come from? How is this brushing up against the corners of the geometry that already exists inside of me, from my past, from my conditioning, from what my parents told me, from what my epigenetic trauma informs me of, right? So... The lovely thing about all of this is that Rose and I literally spoke about this prior to me recording right now, but we are going to talk. You'll hear us talk about how important it is to understand the legacy of something, to understand the past, and to understand your epigenetics. This is the time of the year to do this work. It is so powerful to do it during cancer season. It is so powerful to do it between June 20th and July 20th because it is lit up by the sun the sun is at in the in the northern hemisphere the sun is at its highest okay it is at its peak the days are the longest and the sun is shining down saying get in touch with your past so that you can experience new emotional states new emotional expansiveness new new depths of love new depths of care new depths of community i mean this is all available right now so it's really beautiful but as i look at the granular astrology as i look at some of the the more detailed notes of this week i will say that the beauty of it is that we're going to be offered a lot of enlightening information around how we can be more liberated emotionally but it it's gonna it's gonna be served on a on a plate that's a little little hot you know you're gonna you might burn your hand on that plate when you're getting when you're getting dished out some new possibilities and potentials in the emotional space so i wrote down i took some notes and you know this is gonna this week starting on july 4th it is independence day in the united states the united states is going through its pluto return this is a big moment for the country the country is really struggling we know this if we are reading any form of news 
the United States is going through a big existential crisis uh, as it pertains to so many different things, but particularly the people and the rights of the people. So the U.S. is getting particularly, particularly activated right now because, well, July 4th, whose birthday is that? The United States. So when we're looking at the U.S. Sibley chart, which you can look up, uh, by the way, the Founding Fathers... The Founding Fathers, mm, trigger trigger word, right? Trigger fa- phrase. The Founding Fathers cast and had had a person named Sibley. Okay, that's why it's called the U.S. Sibley chart. They had a person whose last name was Sibley write or craft an astrological map, an astrological chart for the U.S. in Philadelphia when they were signing the Declaration of Independence. Okay, you can look it up. It's a real thing. There is a chart called the Sibley, the U.S. Sibley chart. It was cast for the country as what uh, uh, to what we call like an event chart, right? It's not a person. It's, a, well, you know, you could argue that the U.S. is a very large Leviathan-like person, but essentially it's, it's an event that took place. Each country technically has one. And the U.S. Sibley chart is the one that is most widely used for the U.S. Now, the U.S. is going through its Pluto return, which is in the Sibley chart at 27 degrees of Capricorn. I'm not going to bore you with that, but this is being primarily or let's say um, it's being very, very activated right now. And because it's the U.S.'s birthday, just expect there to be news about the country, not just, oh, yeah, it's July 4th, it's Independence Day, but really we will probably be seeing events uh, we will see them all year because the U.S. Pluto return takes about two and a half to three years, really, maybe even longer, you could argue, to come to a full resolving state. And we're really like at the beginning of it. But we will see events happening on a countrywide level that will be indicative of the transformative quality that this country is going through because a Pluto return means an immense amount of transformation through acknowledging the dark or shadowy or... Um, less than favorable aspects of a country. This includes the indigenous genocide that this country was founded on, as well as bringing African slaves over to the United States. So there will be a lot around people's rights. Uh, Obviously, women's rights are a huge issue right now, slash anyone who can get pregnant's rights. But really, just the rights of the people are going to come into full four. The economy also because of the nodes uh, in Taurus and Scorpio, which rule finances and markets. You know, they're all activated. That's why we're seeing all of this happen. And I will give you good news is that these things all happen in cycles. So although this season, July 4th especially, is going to highlight the problems in the U.S., it is a cycle. The Pluto return will end and there will be a new country on the other side of it. So (laughs) hold tight. I uh, am an optimist and Partially, I'm an optimist because I'm constantly working to better myself and better my community and be a better citizen of the world. And if we're all doing that, then I think there's, you know, a little bit of lubrication with all this change, right? Okay, so the country going through a little crunchy time. As individuals, we need to know the water's a little choppy right now, okay? There's going to be some understanding. We will be offered a hot plate of like, how do you understand your personal authority versus the responsibility of relationships? So there's going to be a lot of tension there. You can argue there always is, but this will be highlighted right now, especially power dynamics can be really big during this time, especially if you're visiting family. I will be visiting family, so (laughs) just prepping myself for this right now. And then, you know, the question that I posed was, how do I make room for the other, but also honor myself? And this is really about intimacy at the end of the day. 
So there's different kinds of attachment. And if anyone has studied attachment theory, they know that human interpersonal relationships involve attachment. So there's healthy attachment, then there is avoidant attachment and anxious attachment. Now, intimacy really, really only functions in healthy attachment. Avoidant attachment is you get triggered by a relationship dynamic and you check out in either physically or emotionally, psychically, spiritually, you just check out. You're like, I don't want to deal with this. Now, anxious attachment is the exact opposite motion, you know, uh, physics. It's, it's the opposite in physics of the motion of avoidant, which is pulling away. It's pushing forward or trying to grab or hold or take or force, right? So avoidant attachment flips out and really wants to like connect, but in a way that is done in deep fear, pain, and anxiety, and often can be uh, very anxiety provoking for the recipient of an anxious attachment. Um, modality. So now what is healthy attachment? Healthy attachment is being able to have the tools and the groundedness to be in conflict, understand that there will always be contradictions in conflict and that, you know, multiple people can be right at once. Multiple people can be wrong at once. They can be wrong in different ways. They can be right in different ways, but being able to have the tools and the self accountability and the, uh, respect and compassion and self-auditing that allows you to stay grounded in moments of intensity to be in conflict and to still love the person on the other side and to find a way, you know, it's conflict resolution, to find a way to conflict resolution. Now, this is way easier said than done, but it's definitely going to come up this week. Taking things slowly, taking breaks, taking time out to figure out, oh, that was a weird dynamic. Ah, I got triggered. Ooh, okay, this is what I did when I got triggered. Mm, I should take note. Do I really want to do that again? These are great things to be asking yourself because this is about forming deeper intimacy through healthy attachment, through conflict resolution, and through understanding that, you know, even if your ego really believes that you're right, sometimes it doesn't even matter. It's about forging a bond with somebody and how do you forge a bond with somebody how do you hold disparate aspects of a person and still love them this is a big part of cancer energy this is a big part of what we're doing right now it is especially challenging with family members so keep that in mind that it uh, i believe that we create soul contracts with the family members that we're born in the family we're born into. So we have, and you can see this in human design. You can actually see something called genetic continuity. It's really fascinating to see through human design and astrology as well, where you just basically see, okay, this is how all the puzzle pieces of these family members fit together. And you can watch it generation to generation. And it is just, I mean, you can't make it up. It's amazing to see. Now, the thing about signing a soul contract with a family member is basically the idea is, and it, it could be a metaphor. You could take it as a metaphor. I believe it, but you know, whatever. It's like, mm, there's power in that and there's power in believing it's a metaphor that you sign a soul contract before you even embody where you, you know, come into embodiment where you say, okay, I'm going to do this with you. We're going to do this together in this lifetime. You know, maybe there's residual. I always sometimes think that there's like just tons of residual DNA from the family line that needs to be worked out. That's the epigenetics of it. And whoever you incarnate with in your family, it's a sacred duty. It's a sacred duty to work with them, to forgive them, to have compassion for them, to hold all of their contradictions. It is a sacred duty. 
So that's part of this week is just honoring that. And this can be chosen family and it can certainly be biological family. The country needs it regardless. You know, this country, if we're thinking about the U.S. on July 4th, then yes, this country needs this level of bonds being forged, intimacy through conflict resolution, through holding the fact that people are literally just a messy pile of, of idiosyncrasies. Like every single human has just so much conflicting energy. I read astrology charts for, you know, every day. I read clients' charts and you see how in everybody's chart there are at least three and three to four interpretive contradictions. Uh, for example, someone can have a really, really, really sharp mind, but it can be in a part of the chart where they don't really talk very much, you know, or they have really great relation. They're, they're, the planet Venus is a relationship planet. It's in a really great sign, but it's in the 12th house. So it's karmic or it's not to be, you know, I mean, the, the, this is the things that happen, right? These are the contradictions inherent in embodiment. So accepting that during this period of time, meditating on that, listening to me talking about that, and then just taking it further and looking at your own life and your own family dynamics right now, as well as your chosen family dynamics, will be really helpful and really trying to put compromise or resolution at the forefront. We can have actual conversations this week, right, where we are working through this conflict resolution, where we know, okay, there's going to be some triggery stuff with people that we were close to. You can also have subtle personal conversations with yourself. I mean, this is you can do subtle work this week as well. I mean, this is part of wanting to feel something new. It's great to, you know, the process of feeling often at least integrating feelings for me happens in a place of quietude later after some event has happened. And then when I have a moment to cool down, calm down and sit in a more neutral space, I can kind of tease out the textures of the emotions that were happening. This is like a kind of a, a nice little cleansing process to make room for the new emotions that are coming through because that's when they come through. They really, really make themselves known during this season. High summer. I wanted to talk a little bit about epigenetic trauma because family is just such a big part archetypally of this energy. So I'll, I'm gonna just gonna, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about epigenetic trauma. There's plenty of work. I am not an expert in epigenetic trauma, but I'm going to give some information that I found doing some research. So we have neural flexibility at any age, and we can make new connections in our brain and have an impact on the expressions of our genetic code, okay? So really, I want you to think that you're sort of like an improv actor with your own genetic code. This could be mind-boggling for some, but I want you to just follow me here. We're constantly in a touch-and-go relationship to literally the building blocks of our expression. You can work with it. You can work with, you know, some people are like, oh, well, you've been that way for 30 years. You're going to continue. No, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's put some lubrication in here. Let's put some flexibility. We have an impact on our genetic code. Okay, so the, the more work we do in this realm, like intentional work of like, I'm going to heal some of the, you know, wounds of my past, the wounds of my family's past, of my legacy, of my inheritance, the more we can do. And there's definitely like modes and ways of doing that. So 
So you, you can't actually, of course, change your DNA, right? Like we're not we're not going in and like changing the DNA directly in a physical sense, but we can make changes to our internal and external environments, and we can turn on and off the expression of certain genes. So if we're if we're addressing intergenerational trauma, it can change an orientation to life. So. A great example that I have that I've spoken about on the podcast before is that I had a really profound craniosacral session in Mazunte, Mexico. And I did not ask for this session. Like, I wasn't like, I'm going to go get craniosacral. As I've said before, like, I don't actually end up seeking out those things often, even though you might assume that I do. But a friend was like, you have to do this. You have to see this person. I did. She is a cancer son. So this is her time and it's her birthday month. And it, it, of course, she's a cancer because cancers literally hold room for new emotions. They make amazing therapists because they're literally here to shepherd people into having new emotions, new relationships to their emotional state. Exactly this, transforming epigenetic trauma. So I had about, I don't even know how much time passed when I was with her, but I had like a deeply, profoundly unnerving psychedelic experience with her completely sober had a psychedelic experience with her where she walked me through some massive epigenetic trauma massive I mean we're talking like I was seeing objects from the past that I wasn't quite sure that I understood but I knew that they were from the past from where my family's from in the Iberian Peninsula I mean it was really deep it was really intense and after I did that work with her I was really shook and I actually was like a baby lamb or like a baby giraffe coming out of the canal. Like I was shaking and I was really thrown, but I just kind of like got back into my like chug, chug ego train realm. Like just like chug, 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 chug. I'm good. I'm normal. And I went back into the vacation that I was on for my birthday, but I was changed. I was significantly changed. I felt a great degree of lightness in myself. I know it sounds really cheesy and corny, but I actually felt a weight lifted off of my body, out of my body. Something had been released, unlodged, or at the very least like shook up and moved around, given a little bit of attention, care, love from her. I mean, she really shepherded me through this experience. So there's many ways to do it. She, in my opinion, is like a total magician, um, magic worker, light angel, earth angel. And truthfully, getting to Mizunte is not accessible for a lot of people. So, you know, but craniosacral is amazing. Uh, I can't recommend anyone, you know, on the top of my head on in the States. But that was a really amazing moment for me. Uh, psychedelic, speaking of psychedelics, you know, there's a lot of work with psilocybin, ketamine, and acid LSD that have been done. You know, they're, they're doing it right now with uh, war vets, with veterans, as well as I just read an amazing article in New York Times where they're doing this work in Mexico with um, the wives, the wives of veterans who are also dealing with their own stuff and also female vets as well. So that was just amazing to read. And they're really going in and doing work in altered states of consciousness. Very profound. Get ready for the psilocybin re revolution. It is on its way. Okay, so some things we can do that are not quite like necessarily like getting high or going to Mizunte to see a witch. We can attend therapy sessions regularly, right, to address inherited trauma. You can talk about it directly. You can literally just be like, this is where I come from. This is my family. If you don't know that, then it's really, I highly recommend during this period of time doing some research on your family if you can. Now, I come from a place where a lot of my 
family has been, um, their history has been purposefully obscured, uh, purposefully destroyed. So I know that this is not an easy process for everybody. It can be a highly, it, it generally is a highly emotional process. So I'm not saying that this is easy, but if you do have access, there's definitely like online, uh, you know, whatever it is, the 23andMe, we can, you can do that. And there's a lot because of the internet, we can access a lot of information. So I highly recommend that talking to a therapist about it and, and finding ways to make sustainable lifestyle changes to support this healing process. That's part of what's so interesting about this time is you're literally asking for a new emotional state, which changes your physical realm. It changes your routines. I mean, this is, it's really profound. Emotions are psychedelic. Oh, y'all like, just feel me on this. They change things just immediately in your, in your day-to-day living. Another thing that's really important that I talked about with Megan Joy May, and I will talk about again, uh, all the way through this North Node in Taurus is consume an anti-inflammatory diet containing nutrient dense foods. This is so big. When I did the work in Mizunte, uh, the craniosacral work and was healing the epigenetic trauma, doing some work there, she talked to me about, you know, what food I was taking in, how much water I was taking in. There was something very profound and powerful there. Anyone who's ever worked with an Ayurvedic practitioner knows that diet is immensely sacred and immensely important. So really working to find an anti-inflammatory diet with nutrient-dense foods will help the healing process. It literally helps your body heal from emotional trauma. Be consistent about improving your sleep on that note. Sleep hygiene, high quality of sleep on a regular basis, essential. We are in bodies. We are embodied. Exercise and yoga, as well as like any kind of breathing techniques, working on your breathing. Uh, I just talked with Al Schult about uh, pelvic floor health. So, you know, working on breathing into your pelvic floor, doing some pelvic floor work, really great. Uh, it increases helpful brain chemicals. Stay open and, and, and not just stay open. It says, you know, it's stay open is my note, but I'm like, practice the art of opening to learning new things. Like literally, it's not gaslighting yourself, just being like, I maybe I don't know. Maybe I should learn something new. This is a core tenant, core tenant of Judaism is to just learn. Learn new things. Learn from other people. Learn a new subject. Just open your, it helps your brain make new connections. It creates more neuroplasticity, which helps heal epigenetic trauma. The big thing that I talked about at the top, I'll say it one more time, is cultivating relationships that are based on trust, compassion, and mutual respect. You can just, I always tell my clients, top five people in your life. Think about the top five people in your life. Do they consist, do those relationships consist of trust, compassion, and mutual respect? If they don't, there's just work to be done. It's not the end of the world. There's just work to be done. Practice mindfulness and meditation techniques. This helps. It helps reduce stress and rewire the brain. Engage in spiritual practices. Rose and I are going to be talking about that. They give you hope and increase your sense of optimism. And spiritual practices, these are, you know, the thing that Rose and I talk about is the communal oriented aspect of this, like really working with ritual in community. I mean, this is, or working with community in ritual. This is very important work. It is the salve. It is the salve for late capitalism. So being in a spiritualized zone or flow state while in community is powerful work. That can happen at a performance art event. It can happen at Vauxhall Tavern, which we'll talk about. It can happen at a you know place of worship. I mean, this can happen in so many different realms. Find your community this year and be in spiritualized settings. 
The last thing is so important, okay? Have fun and engage in joyful activities, sponta- spontaneous activities and interactions to counteract the impact of stress. Literally having fun helps so much because it t- it puts you in touch with your inner child, which is a big part of this healing process. Your inner child needs to be along for the ride the whole time. You need to be with that inner child and love that inner child while you're doing, you know, potentially work that's ancestral, you know, work that's very, very old. So this is a, it's a big lift, but we all got it. We all embodied into this thingness. We're doing this. We've been asked to do this. We signed a contract to do it maybe from our soul. We all have the tools. It's just about tapping into them, creating a little bit of lubrication in our brain, in the neuroplasticity, and making profound new changes that liberate us, that make us feel more free in the depth of connecting. It's like literally being free in the depth of connecting, which is intimacy. Okay. Consistency is the key to, to a successful healing process. So just, you know, committing to some, to committing to daily self-care and committing to some of these practices can be really, really powerful over time. This is the time to mother yourself, to remother yourself. On that note, I'm going to speak to Rose, who is a rabbi, Rabbi Rose, also a mother. And, uh, Speaking of cancer being ruling bodies of water, she just went for a swim at the ponds before we talked to her, and I can't wait to swim in the ponds in London and immerse myself. Speaking of immersion, mikvah, all these beautiful things we're doing, we're talking about, welcome, Rose. And we are back with Rose Previsor. She is a rabbi, activist, and curator working at the intersection of art, spirituality, and communal innovation. She is head of communities at JW3, London's leading Jewish arts and culture venue, and is also involved in the Wellspring Project, working to build an inclusive center for well-being with mikvah at its heart. Rose, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Say hello. How are you doing? You're talking to us from across the pond in the UK right now. You've gone global. Um, I am great. Yeah, I'm. It's it's only rained a little today, so not many things to complain about. It's only rained a little bit in summer in London. Yes, there we go. We've had a good stretch. And you told me in the pre-show chat that you went and swam at the ponds. I did. I went and swam at the ponds at Hampstead Heath, and you know, saw my favorite duck friends. Went past. No swans today, but but you know, a, a pleasant a pleasant afternoon experience. Yes. Well, you're up, you're amidst a swan right now. I like to think of myself as a, as a swan. Uh, <laughs> Rose, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. We met just like a month ago, which it, honestly time feels so strange right now. I feel like I've known you for a long time. And we met at 8,000 feet elevation, which might be part of the psychedelic quality of that lack of oxygen, right? Yeah, met- I, I, I actually wrote an application for, for, uh, for a fellowship or a grant the morning the last morning there and it's the, the sort of most I just let it go and when they sat me down for interview they they said this the very odd application I was like 8,000 feet altitude amazing you wrote yes I was writing during that conference as well at 8,000 feet I mean I love that you're like I'm raw I'm here <laughs> this is my this is my unfiltered oxygen deprived self <laughs> exactly that he says I've known you for years and so like I've never heard any of this I was like yep I'm just letting it out yes yes that that was the whole feeling after that weekend yes Rose and I went to a uh I mean how would you describe reboot it's a Jewish change makers conference 
yeah uh, Jewish ideas and creatives and and big picture thinking and and a lot of crying yeah a lot of crying yes oh so good so cathartic very <laughs> emotional really did yes so beautiful so Rose let's start out since the audience doesn't know you and I have the absolute honor of knowing you let's talk a little bit about where you come from anything you want to talk about in regards to your family origin story and how that affects who you are today yeah so so as you mentioned I'm I'm a rabbi um and a rabbi who works with artists so two very strange things that don't always go together mm. um and I grew up in London um where being a female rabbi is even more strange and unusual yes. Yes. I grew up in a sort of the synagogue my parents are not going to is Orthodox, quite Orthodox world. That the Jewish community here is 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 big and and vibrant and interesting, but but sort of leans a little conservative. Um, and at the same time, I went to a sort of radical girls' school, so I lived with this lot of uh, strange tension between this idea that you know you could go out and be any you know the woman you wanted to be in in any particular context. And then once a week, I was sort of going to Hebrew school and you know men do this women go on this side it was it was a very strange experience and um the part of me that I think has always been fascinated by the sort of tension in spaces and and mm. the conflict of two ideas um I wouldn't have named it as such at the age of seven or eight but it but it was there like I've always loved that those in between spaces and and what you can create there um so I just spent a lot of time sort of pushing back and pushing back um, and I was really blessed to study anthropology and, and visual anthropology, which is the sort of the way we see the world um, at university. And I ended up in, in this strange career path through, through the art world. Um, but that also was sort of every once in a while, I was like diving into my Jewish identity and, and cultural engagement. And, and there was this interesting period in my 20s where the Jewish world here was suddenly exploding culturally. Interesting. Um, gone through like new centers and new organizations were opened up and there was this real bubble of young creatives um, looking to do sort of exciting um, radical things that hadn't existed before and I was really lucky to find myself sort of on the cusp of that and I gradually realized that while I loved the work I was doing with artists and I, and I loved um, I loved that space of exploration I was in like there was a part of me that was really missing because it was really disconnected from my Jewish self mm. and and so I started exploring that more and more until I somehow found myself at rabbinical school in in LA um, which was amazing because then I got to dive really deep into the weirdness and and the sort of wonderful space that is West Coast Judaism yes. and this in, incredible sort of path for myself that I hadn't expected to find where I got to sort of be a teacher and an educator and, and but also someone who's deeply immersed in the world of Jewish arts and culture and got to work um, with Jewish artists who are also exploring their identity and, and their own path in this and, and being communities that were sort of seizing arts and culture as, as the channel for spirituality. Um, and it was just, it was, it was genuinely brilliant. I didn't sadly know you when I lived there, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like exactly. Um, you know, people doing amazing things the way that you're doing them. It, it was it was just such a gift and, and such a completely unexpected journey from someone from Northwest Jewish London. Yes, that's such an interesting, I mean, now you've painted for me an interesting, I, I love that you're like, I sort of live in contradictory spaces or hold contra like 
the tension of being in a space with many things sort of at odds, quote unquote, with each other. And now I'm I'm starting to see this picture of London. I mean, I, I have to say, I'm going to come out and say it like I've never thought of London as like a particularly Jewish place. You know, I mean, this is just my my like naive as someone who loves the city dearly and loves British culture, as you well know. I just had never thought that I had never thought of it as a Jewish place. And now thinking of that in contrast to Los Angeles, which, you know, actually has a little bit more of like, quote unquote, a Jewish presence due to Hollywood um, and a, a similar to, I guess, a sister city to New York in that way. Not quite as like steeped in Judaism as New York per, per se. But what did you notice is the difference between Los Angeles and and London's relationship to Judaism? as well as just overall things that you were like, wow, this is quite different. Yeah, I, I think the thing that, that's always struck me is just this sense of freedom on the West Coast. And the the sort of the liberal progressive strands of it is is is, is in the majority. And, mm. and there's a lot of freedom to explore and a lot of people who are willing to help and facilitate that. Mm. And a lot of communities bubbling up, often led by women or, or queer people on and those who are have been sort of traditionally marginalized in, in mainstream Judaism who are creating these communities and creating these spaces, which is, which is fascinating. But equally at the same time, the freedom to do that takes a lot of the pressure off. Like you feel like you are, mm. the urgency isn't there as much because there, mm. there's so much to do and see and explore. And actually one of the things, I was so sad to leave LA and, and sort yeah. of oh, it's going to be so difficult for me career-wise when I move back. You know, I'm a female rabbi, but I'm also someone who works well. So it's like, what am I going to do with myself? Yes. And actually, I'm finding it quite exciting and motivating because there is this whole, there's a growing and emerging sort of network and, and movement of people who are, who are looking to, to explore things like on those edges, on those yeah. margins. And there's also, and, and the there's less emergence of spiritual communities that are sort of doing that exciting, innovative work, but there's space for them. Wow. But there's yeah. real potential here to, to sort of work with those people who, who felt disenfranchised and actually, um, you know, create, you know, places, spaces of experimentation, brave spaces, spaces for queer people, spaces for queer artists, um, spaces for, for women, for non-binary effects, for people who, who really, um, just want something a little bit more. Who, who yeah. wants to sort of feel like they are building things that are for them. That yes. the sort of idea of reimagining ritual yes. that is is what you need. Like we're not going to yes. survive. None of us will survive whether we're yes. Jewish, Christian, non-denominational. Just like to go stare at the moon once a month. None of us are going to survive the sort of. <laughs> this is late stage capitalist nightmare yes. that we might be going through without finding those pathways and those moments for ourselves. I love that. And I think you just helped me understand a really powerful bridge in, I mean, I've helped me re-understand, I should say, a powerful bridge between art and Judaism or art and religion in general or art and spirituality in general is that that ritual key, that ritual point is so grounding and so necessary, not only to build community, but to also just come back to yourself as an individual as well. Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about uh, the most exciting forms of ritual that you work with just in general or are thinking about developing? Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about this actually, because, because we, you know, 
when you when you asked me to be on here and, and said this is one of the things you you wanted to talk about and, and every time someone asks this question it, I sort of actually have a different answer you know about that way art and Judaism intersect and where is the place of ritual in it and and what's interesting is that while I have sort of some community connection here in terms of a, a sort of spiritual community it, it's much more normative than it was for me in LA. Mm. Um, so I'm finding that I'm, my spirituality and, and that sense of connection I have with the other, with the people in that experience, because for me, a lot of that connection to spirituality um, comes through um, the sort of materiality and the physicality of our tradition. So mm. um, I've been finding it you know, I, I'm not someone who can just sort of go out in the woods as much as I enjoy the nature swims. Like that's not, that's where I sort of find peace and calm, but it's not where I find that sort of transcendent moment. I find that transcendent moment in community and I find it in those spaces of creativity. Mm. So I, I've been missing some of that within the sort of Jewish community setting, but I've been finding it very deeply in, in the sort of the art space. And, oh, and I've been thinking a lot recently about art you know, the, the the Jewish art is so fundamentally important that any art that helps people sort of deeply connect with their identity and explore it and build it and, and reimagine it um, and, and find their pathway through is, is really powerful. But I've also been thinking of it in terms of art as, as, as ritual and art mm. as its own access point yes. to spirituality. Um, and I've been feeling that very deeply in everything that I've been experiencing, even, even if that hasn't been the intention of the artist or, you know, I'm standing in the, in the, in the sort of Homer's and Homer's Cabaret night at Vauxhall Tavern, which is yes. by the way, an excellent and amazing name for their collective. Yes. Um, Can you say it one more time? What's the name of the collective? Homer's and Hummus. Homos and Hummus. Oh my gosh. Yeah, lots of chickpeas. So, lots of chickpeas. Oh. Homer's and, and chickpeas. Um, and then, you know, in that moment of that sort of, that collective joy, in this experience and, and a group of people who are from all different backgrounds but that but that moment of connection is where I've been you know finding that space for myself and and the the sort of them doing these monthly or sort of seasonal moments like has taken on and them and and other groups and other um you know other artists experience have taken on that ritual space for me like it's here that I can come in and find that moment and find that grounding to, to sort of build that connection and, and that process. And then it makes me come home and want to reimagine my own ritual for myself yes. and think about what is the community that I want to build and yes. how can those people who may not previously have ever imagined themselves being part of a spiritual Jewish community or may have felt rejected by one, what can they do? Mm. Like how could they come into this space and make this the sort of the space of dynamic wild ritual that gets us all up and, and excited about you know tradition and practice and and gives us the tools we all need to to sort of cope with the day yes yes i i got chills when you were talking about the vauxhall tavern and for those who know london you you know hopefully you know about the vauxhall tavern if you don't it is a wonderful venue where queer folks it's historical i mean queer folks have been performing there doing drag and performance art for, I mean, a long time. It's a beautiful space. And I, I completely agree. The, the moment that you have a diverse group of people in a room sharing an experience and being in that like flow state, there is something really, it's the idea of like 
changing whoever you're around and, and whoever is around you changing you and that moment of collective change together around something that is generative and not necessarily destructive is really beautiful. So yes, I hear all yeah. of that. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 always, it's always one that the thing I was also thinking about, and it goes back to what I said before about sitting in those spaces and in the edge spaces mm. and, and sitting, um, you know, in those tension points is like, for me, art, Jewish art and, and is at its most powerful when it like, sort of in a head-on collision or engaging really, really deeply with the tradition. Like, Mm. I want to support Jewish artists in all forms. I want to support artists from all backgrounds, but but my work is very specifically in the space a lot of the time. Um, and, And where I get the most from it and where I think it's the most powerful is where people have have really sort of like confronted it head on they they like gone deep into it and then they pulled it out and created something that is completely and entirely new it's in Mm. dialogue with it but it's also giving us something to to change how we think about that thing yes you know we we our chef friend Nikki yes you know when I think about Nikki's work around mikvah spaces and about Mm. ritual objects and that context like it changes the way that I think about those things and it, and it changes my relationship to them for the better and forces me to look at those things and 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 rebuild my connection to that ritual in that moment completely yeah when nikki green nikki green's an amazing ceramic artist for those of you who don't know her name is spelled the last name is g-r-e-e-n nikki green wonderful work look it up but when she was talking about mikvahs and then actually mentioned, you know, I come from Salt Lake City, Utah. So she mentioned Mormonism and she mentioned looking at, they have sort of similar bath-like structures that I didn't know about. And her explaining that to me through her deep research of these ritual bath spaces totally shifted my relationship to Mormonism as someone who's like, oh yeah, I grew up with that. I know all about that. Like, I have some sort of staunch idea of, of what it is for her to come in and show me images that were like really beautiful images of, of uh, Mormon architecture. I was like, wow, okay, this is so, the way that the tendrils just permeate everywhere and, and are changing everything. I really, I really love I, I mean, I was, I was next to you when yes. two of you were having that conversation. It was the first conversation I think we had. And it like, that is such a perfect moment because I'd also never heard of it. And it also made me go and like rethink about those spaces and, and look into them. And, and it's, and, and like, it's done the same thing to me, not about Salt Lake City and yeah. not even necessarily about Mormonism, yeah. but about, you know, it's, it's an extra layer in this work of like how, you know, as, as you said at the beginning, I'm, I, I am not just from the water, but I, I'm really interested in the use of water and in the use mm, of immersion. Yeah in ritual spaces and and a lot of my work here now is um around trying to create a sort of inclusive mikvah which is the jewish immersion hall that we use for um all sorts of reasons but but often for conversion for sort of weekly um transitional moments um for for in women's spaces there's a negative connotation with that that it can be reclaimed in a way that's extremely beautiful and powerful for, for people of all bodies um, and, and that's what we're looking to achieve and exploring that connection to wellness and, and uh, mental health and, and possible uses around addiction therapy and things like that. 
Um, but I'm really interested in that it sort of added this whole layer of how other communities and other cultures and other traditions use immersion and, and ritual and how they glorify or, or don't the space, like the physical spaces around that, like the, mm. the woman faces in, from what we, what she showed us is so incredibly ornate and, uh, and ours are not. And what does that speak to different communities relationship to the body to relationship to the physicality of their traditions is yeah. is such like that that's when my brain goes into overdrive and and one thing that i keep returning to as you're speaking the thing i love one of the many things i love about judaism is this idea that you know there is this you said it earlier like going head on into a problem and judaism fosters that judaism's like let's let's sit in the let's actually like dive into the tension let's dive into something that's that is a, the future of judaism which is not holding on you know i have a catholic background and the catholic the sort of overall catholic background is like hold on to the like rules these sort of uh deeply set rules and we cannot change them and we're going to really really hold to them and what i love about at least my understanding of Judaism, and I believe that your your vision of Judaism as well is like ever evolving, ever expanding, challenging itself, being an argument, be, you know, having moments of tension and then resolving them to find intimacy and for things to be constantly morphing and changing in that process. Yes, yes. And I, and I, and I think that's why, and, and we, talked, we talked about this as well at 8,000 feet, like, you know, Judaism is in so many ways, like, it, it is a it is a tradition of like challenging like the, the, the strand of Judaism that exists now of like deep conservatism and and, mm. and you know this sort of tra unmoving tradition and 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 people who sort of won't this is the law and it is so antithetical to what I think it has and always has been and I think even when you go into the text and the tradition like the rabbis are in these deep intense dialogue with one another in, in the Talmud and, and in many of our texts. And, and they're never giving, very rarely do they give a complete answer to an argument. Or a definitive like answer. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're constantly pushing back against one another and they're teaching you how to think. And they're teaching you sort of how to do, like to, to sit in those transitional spaces. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. one of the things we talked about when, when we met was around like, queerness in Judaism and the sort of Judaism is a as in many ways a sort of radically queer tradition yes. <laughs> that is that is always you know when when you know lived by people who who sort of see that thread of there's change and evolving and and there's and and we exist outside the mark you know we've always existed outside of you know whatever the majority community has been and we and we you know we carried you know, Jews carried a lot of the same tropes that that you know queer communities and, and others have been had thrown at them. And then this is not to sort of claim queerness for Jews as an entity, but that that sort of that sense of of, of like living in the liminal space and, and pushing back against you know normative practice to find your own path for yourself, that sort of deeply radical space, I think, I think chimes a lot and you and I talked about this when we met so yes yeah. <laughs> I, I mean to your to piggyback off of that I as a as a person who grew up queer but then also you know was struggling to find language for my own identity growing up because there wasn't any language at the time there was when I came to Judaism third like almost you know 20 years later 
and was reclaiming my history, I was like, oh, this is this is almost like a, a third coming out for me. You know, I had like a coming out as like a queer person. Then I like had a coming out as a trans person. And then in a way, I'm coming out as, as a Jewish person in the sense that I'm the all of the ideas around it feel very resonant. I mean, the idea of like living, as you said, living in between spaces, uh, this sort of sense of like having to build your own home wherever you are because there isn't necessarily a home given to you. And the and to me, the miracles and the blessings that come out of that process. I mean, I, I just told someone the other day when I was on my uh, elder journey through um, the Bay Area, seeing the trans elders, Susan Stryker and Sandy Stone. Sandy Stone, by the way, is Jewish. And just to have that experience of, and, and Susan's partner is Jewish. So it was just a very Jewish time. Um, but yes, anyway, so, but having this experience of seeing them and realizing like, I said this to them, it's a miracle to me that I wasn't born a cis male. Like I really deeply appreciate and honor and like revel in the process of how much, as you said earlier, tension and, and even inherent contradiction that I've had to sit with, navigate, move through, transform consistently throughout my life. And so when I arrive at Judaism in my you know late 20s, early 30s, I'm like, oh, I'm home with a group of people who know what it's like to have to create your own home all the time. <laughs> We're not just given it. We have to create it. And uh, the other thing that you said, I just wanted to mention Rabbi Bene Lape, because I, I always love mentioning Rabbi Bene Lape uh, at Sfara. And just there's an amazing uh, TED talk that they give called A Queer Talmudic Take. And it's to your point where they're like really saying Judaism is inherently queer, and, you know, people might have problems with that, but this is their argument. Judaism is inherently queer. And part of it is creating a Judaism and creating rituals, even outside of Judaism, creating rituals for people where they can get to know themselves better while also developing community in a way that isn't uh, like leashed or chained to the past, that, that, that we're creating a Judaism that is unrecognizable to previous generations of Jews. And saying that with like a level of joy and gusto and and like chutzpah, just being like, yes, we're doing it. We're doing something that's new and different. Yes. And and I the one thing I would add with, with great yes. reverence to our elders and, yes. and I it may be that this was just slightly lost in, in both of our explanations, but I but I think we are we are imagining a space that has never existed and we are creating mm. something that is new and exciting but I think it is it is happening deeply in dialogue with the tradition yes. and then and that is what makes it so yes exciting and so powerful and so meaningful for so many people that these communities and spaces are emerging what they are doing at Svara and, and with that group of people and and in that community is exactly that they are they are in radical dialogue with the tradition. They are finding all those spaces and all those texts and all those parts that have been ignored by the sort of cis patriarchal um, tradition for so long. And they're putting all these pieces that were in there, exposing them for what they are. And then yes. saying, how can we make this the basis of, of our practice and our communities yes. and, and that is that is just that's so amazing it's so amazing and and my mother speaking of, of people who've been displaced my mother's catalan she's from spain right but she's from she wouldn't even necessarily identify as spanish she would identify as catalan and they dealt with a lot of atrocity uh throughout history but definitely in the spanish civil war most recently and 
one thing that she's always said to me is, and I think it's a Catalan saying, it could be a Spanish saying to the entire um, peninsula, but basically you cannot know where you are going unless you know where you come from. So you must know your past to know where to go. And she said that to me many, many times. And it's interesting because we're reclaiming our, our Sephardic roots right now. So we're, even though she's now in her sixties and I'm in my thirties, like we're finding our past and now it's actually opening up. It's expanding. I'm, I feel personally like my life is expanding because I'm going back and reclaiming. But to your point too, we don't throw away things and are like, oh, this is old and patriarchal. We're not going to deal with it. It's like, how do you sit in the contradiction of it? You know, I, I brought up Hasidic men at the conference and, and, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I love to sit with that, like the tension of like, okay, yes, this thing, but there's got to be something in here that has like a queered meaning there, you know, like, I'm like, there's something in here that's juicy and, and whatever comes out of this can create something new you know, without discarding necessarily the tradition of it. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that the, the tension for me there is a lot of the time, a lot is justified mm. by people who, who aren't necessarily deeply immersed in it. Right. You know, there's, there's a sense for people, a lot of people feel a lot of guilt about their mm. engagement or lack of engagement or level of engagement with, their own tradition, their own history, their past. And so they often will defend what they see as the authentic space. And, and we see this in all different areas of life, um, but they're defending the authentic space. And as a result of that, those of us who, who see ourselves as like, we are, we are walking the traditional path, we're, we're, but we're doing it in, in, in dialogue with our ancestors. We're doing it in a way that we think is, is, is what's going to keep you know things alive it's, yes. it's doing it in the way that that is creative and emergent in the way that that's that's what it was previously um but but that is not a popular view for a lot of people because it yes. forces them to confront their own perceived inadequacies around their connection to their identity and mm. their faith and their tradition and then that's and that's a, that's that to me is like the saddest bit of some of this that people who who would be in every other that area of their life would be so deeply they're so deeply engaged in in culture and and you know ideas and and you like won't allow themselves to have that dialogue with what is their legacy like what is yeah. that you know the thing that was their gift at birth or or you know through their parents' choice or or on numerous ways. And, and so I think for me, I, I don't want to like shove the men in the hats yes. oh, in yeah. a cupboard and leave them there forever. Um, I don't at all. And, but I, I also, I think we do a disservice when we allow things that are problematic um, to, to go by in the name of authenticity. Yes. But I don't, I don't want to shut them away. I want to be in dialogue with them. And, yes. and the challenge is that they don't want to be in dialogue with me. Yes. And part of it, you know, I think about it because uh, yeah, I'm obsessed right now with uh, Hasidim in general, but I, I like wearing the tzitzit and my friend in Florida who does not pass as male wearing the tzitzit out in Florida, <laughs> you know, like having, having 
orthodox and conservative people come up to them being like, what are you doing? And them having, they've told me like, they've had a myriad of conversations. Like some of them, some of the conversations go really poorly. And some of the conversations are the person leaves being like, oh, I learned something new. This is totally different than I'm seeing a ritual object on a body that quote unquote, it's not allowed to be wearing. That body's not allowed to be wearing, but it is. And this is happening in real time. And I think, you know, you said something about the having rituals and having traditions and survive in as we move into this like accelerating, I don't even know what space we're in. We're like in late capitalism heading into something else. We don't know. But as we're doing that, you know, keeping our keeping our rituals like nimble, flexible, open, rewriting them communally. I don't want my daughter to inherit a dead tradition. I want her to inherit one that is, you know, thriving, no matter what the world is happening. Like I want her to find her path within it. And I want her to find security and comfort and community. And I want her to to be buoyed by it. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want it to it to feel like a dead empty thing for her and and that requires the responsibility on on that it it falls on us like it falls on us to to not just keep this thing alive for the sake of keeping it alive because I think that is I have no interest in that I don't I don't care about that like I've (laughs) I've given myself you know I like I've given myself to this path you know I've taken on rabbi and and obviously I I don't think you can be you know pretty dedicated um you know I I I love it I hate it I I I want to scream at it sometimes it's also what make you know it's what you know gives me purpose and and it's all those Mm. things at once and and but I have no interest in in handing her a dead thing you know a thing that that stayed the same that is uninspiring that 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 doesn't provoke change like and anyone on a spiritual path or anyone on, on, a, on a faith on a faith-based path or on a path of exploring their their identity like it, it has to be transformative it has to yes. be transformative for them and it has to be transformative for the people around them and and the community around them in, in a positive way yes like it, it 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 has to do those things it's it's why I sort of reject you know I reject it for many reasons but it's why for me, I've never really found the spirituality in the sort of quiet personal spaces. I know, I know that mm. works for some people. Um, and I and I think that's very powerful when there's also a community outlet as well. Like it's yes. very hard for me, and and I'm I'm sorry to I hope I'm not offending listeners, but it's very hard for me to to get on board with this, this kind of like I'm I'm purifying myself spiritually or I'm going on this spiritual journey like for my own sake. Like yes. There is a value to it, but the value to me is, is, is in how does that impact your community afterwards? Like, how yes. are you transformed for the good of others? And, and that can't happen if things are stationary, if things yes. are left to just sort of wither on the vine. Like, my goal is to, is to build and create something that, that is ultimately, like the classic sort of leave the world in a better place and you found it. Like I want to leave my traditions and my community in a better place than I found it. I yeah. may not be doing it right right now, but, but it's like, that's the path I'm on. Exactly, that's your path. And you know, you are a rabbi and I am definitely an aspiring rabbi. I'm on my way, I'm so excited. Uh, and I think blessed to have you. Oh, it thank be you. A real, as one of my teachers would say, it'd be good for the Jews, but it would also be good for everyone. <laughs> everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very, very excited about it. 
and and as as two folks who are you know we resonate in that space of of desiring that and you have already you're already deep in it immersed in it as we can say i think part of that is that for me i find the deepest level of spiritual joy just as you do like in community and like literally in spaces with other bodies i mean zoom zoom's okay but like physically embodied around other people and you know i started out as a studio artist and really found performance art as my like lane it was just so deeply my lane because i was able to literally like psychospatially experience myself like alchemizing and transforming in front of other people who were also alchemizing and transforming and i have this conversation with academics all the time which is like you know you collaborate with your audience your audience is very 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 present in performance work and it's necessary and they change you and they're performing too and they don't even know it <laughs> you know? so yes that's how i feel like we're, being a rabbi is in a lot of ways it's performance art in its own way i mean that's you know i'm, I'm putting a blanket statement but it it is that in a lot of ways teaching is that in a lot of ways yes yes and and because it's and and what's so beautiful is the exchange like Yes. The audience is participating in the internet, but the audience is changing you and, and your role in this. I, I, I sort of, I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying about performance art and the Ravenet and, and that transformative space. There's a part of me that, that goes, oh, Rabbi is performer, is, yeah. deep, is deeply traveling. Oh, but like, yes. but the, the, the dynamic you articulated is, is so true. Like mm. if I... I'm speaking to a group of people or teaching them or even just creating a space with artists yeah. and, and, and an audience. Like it, if I walk away with nothing, if I walk away not changed by that in the slightest and their reaction to what I've been doing, then I haven't been doing my job correctly. Mm. I also haven't been doing my job correctly if they walk away in no way transformed by what has occurred. Like it has to be a two-way street. You have to be open for that as well because yes. We are not, you know, what I, I've always rejected the idea of sort of rabbi, performer, um, whoever the person is, this idea that they're, they're the people are on this sort of higher level. Right. Like that, totally. is, that is not who I have. Yeah. Like one of the reasons I don't have, I don't work in a synagogue space is because I, I've kind of always wanted to be down, <laughs> down in the pews, so to speak. I want to be right in the middle. Like, yes. You know, I, I, you know, if I, if I do lead a service or I do, I am bringing community together in that way. I like, I want to be in the middle with people yeah. around me and I want them to come in as close as possible. And I want them to be leading and engaged in it as well. Mm. I, I'm, I'm not interested in this sort of hierarchy, of hierarchy. Yes. like that, that to me is where, um, it's, it's where a lot of problems occur. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but, it, but it also, it's, it, it prevents people from feeling ownership of mm. their experience. And, yes. and that's very challenging for me when I see that happening. Yes, I agree. And my brother said something from a totally different, like reality tunnel, but he's, he runs, he owns a restaurant and he, when he talks about his employees, he's like, you know, if you try to overly control them or overly set in the hierarchy, you don't allow them to like get to know their inner leader you you if you but if you create a space where you're like oh i want to give you an opportunity to lead then people can understand their own inner just i mean leader or authority i mean i just found it really interesting that he was conscious of that and was trying to 
to develop that within like a highly consumer space, you know, just being like, yes, you can learn how to be your own authority, you know, within these spaces in a way that's obviously sensitive to the group. I mean, that's always the, the goal. Amazing. Yes. Um, <laughs> People always, you know, there is always room for growth in all of us. And, oh, yeah. and you know, I, I don't, you know, we're all imperfectly perfect and perfectly imperfect. Um, and we always, you know, one of the hardest things as an educator, a teacher, an artist, uh, you know, anyone dealing with people on a regular basis is knowing when to step back. Like, I think yes. it is actually the hardest thing to learn. And yeah. especially in this culture and the society that tells us that we like need to be striving, we need to be striving all the time. Mm. And we're told that, you know, you have to, to get that next promotion. You have to, you know, you have to figure out what it is you want to do. You have to grab it. You have to grab it. And we often do that at the expense of people around us even even yeah. not consciously yeah. um like we have to we have to get noticed in some ways and actually the most powerful thing you can do the most powerful like there's 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 a there's a sort of you know there is a slightly you know there is a benefit to it like I'm not going to say that that there isn't a benefit to things but of course when you when you step aside and you let people come into there and you're building strong and powerful networks of, of engagement and relationality yes. but like what beautiful thing to like step aside for a second and let someone else find their own path through. Like it's, it always, it's the hardest thing to do, but it's the single best thing you can do as a leader. Mm, yes. Let someone else grow alongside yes. you. Oh, that was really, yes. I was just thinking about that yesterday. Wonderful. I'm, I tell your brother, I'm very, very impressed with him. He has a background in psychology, which helps him immensely. I mean, he thinks about these things like obsessively. So yes, I, I love him. I adore him. We talk really... about the restaurant business as, as a family all the time. Like the really yeah. successful groups, uh, you know, this is, this is the family. Like you can't be that close. Like you'll get spending so we we think about so we're now, now in this like let's talk about workspace yes like, we think it like we spend all our day with people yes we spend yes. so much of our time building this space and and we sort of you know people are like oh we got to do like work bonding things and 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 those are not the things that really matter it's like the conversations as you're making coffee it's like the day-to-day -day yes. chat with the people you supervise it's it's people don't need the big moments of let's go and do team bonding games. They need the like the daily support and the conversations and those moments of inspiration, yes. like as you're scattered, they need what you need in a family, yes. you know, just that feeling supported because yes. you're spending all this time with people. Yes. And, and to bring it to Judaism very directly, something that I found so interesting, specifically about my brother and his pizza shop, right? He's, a, he's an American born, I mean, of course, we're all Catalan, but when I did research on Sephardic people, you know, Ashkenazi people have been more so uh, in areas of like uh, education and, and academia and like really in those spaces, right? And Sephardic folks, at least from the Iberian Peninsula, I mean, of course, this was mostly male. So like men, Sephardic men were in commerce and were building, were like restaurant owners and entrepreneurs and weren't necessarily academics in any sense of the word. We're in these more like what you would consider an entrepreneurial, I don't want to say blue collar, but jobs that didn't require any form of like higher education, but they were creating these like spaces of, of immense commerce. And my family, when you look down the line, 
is true. Like we had people who were in textiles. We had people who were own who ran a factory. And my brother is now running a restaurant in the United States in 2022. And he does it with, I don't, I want to say it like the, the, the psychedelic quality of your epigenetics. Like he's, he treats everybody like a family. I mean, he has that Spanish, like El Duende, like uh, he loves his people. He loves his, his employees, like, and, and they know that, you know, so it's just so fascinating when I did that research and was like, oh, there's my brother. (laughs) That's his lineage. You know, For me, it's shoes. There you go. <laughs> it's shoes. Wait, tell me more. Tell me more. We owned uh, <laughs> we now across the shoes. Um, but the I, I do love like seeing these pathways through through yes. is it exactly like it's like know your past. Yes. My um my grandparents, one side, one uh one family did hosiery. <laughs> One Those family are. did shoes. They had a shoe factory on Viner Street, which in my twenties, um, which is sort of in the in the East End, which in my in the twenties was sort of a very hip, mm. you know, Brooklyn neighborhood. That and Viner Street was full of art galleries, and I and I always was like, you know, I was working in the art world, but I felt like not as cool, like this Jewish girl from Northwest London. <laughs> but I was like standing on streets, the galleries, and I was like, yeah, that that used to be the factory that's now this cool gallery, and that was like my great grandparents' house, and you know, wow. Whitechapel Art Gallery gallery extension is 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 where my grandfather grew up and and all these things and I'm like why why do I feel out of place here Mm. because this is my roots like this is where my family came in and and they had a they had a shoe factory and the other side did hosiery wholesale but you could still see the name up actually on Whitechapel High Street until fairly recently and it's an odd name so you don't miss it Mm and I like to think when my grandparents got together, it was like a unification of the, of the lower half of the body. Oh my gosh, yes. Shoes and hosiery, baby. Yes, they got it taken care of. Full leg. Full leg. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's hilarious. But it's, but there's always, there's, there's still people in the shoe business. Mm-hmm. Like there's someone owns a, a sort of well-known shoe chain. Someone else is in the sort of his daughter who I who I don't know, but I'm aware of is is making you know she's doing the rest of the body. <laughs> Very well known fashion designer, um, and there's always sort of someone has sort of stayed in this generations later, which which I love. Yeah, I, I to see those moments, yes, to bring it full circle and say like knowing where you come from can help you understand where you're going. That's I yeah. When I discovered that thing about Sephardic men in Spain being their own owning their own shops I was like oh there's my brother there he is and he feels very tied he's named after my grandfather so it just feels very very tied to all of it it's beautiful so the last thing I'm just curious about because I I'm an artist you're an artist we're working in arts communities we are organizing within arts spheres what's brewing in the UK or at least in London that you're excited about artistically is there it can be one thing it can be like a, a wave of of work that's happening what do you see that you're excited about or excited to support I'm going to keep it pretty pretty local okay which is I'm I I'm really you know I'm still fairly new back here it's, it's only a year so I'm I'm still well I'm still building my own network and, yes. and I'm still exploring and, and it's a whole new generation and I'm I'm just I'm genuinely really excited about all the young Jewish artists I'm meeting who are mm doing exactly what we've been talking about doing from from sort of drag queens to drag kings to to writers and and 
um, performance artists and, and burlesque artists and um, playwrights and, and sort of every, like there is this real moment that, that I'm seeing of, of people doing exactly exactly the things we've been saying of, of sort of grappling deeply with their own <laughs> their own trauma their own neuroses their their own tradition and and really like creating such interesting work around this and and a lot of it's on a small scale this is you know but but that's that's such a relatively new thing mm. and and what's actually new about it because of course there's always been people doing that there's always been young Jewish artists in Britain finding their own path and building their own thing but like their willingness to engage with Judaism and Jewish faces is is relatively new like you used to have to do it like completely on the margins there was nowhere to yeah. do it in the mainstream or even like slightly <laughs> slightly center and and now thanks to where I work and, and a few other places like there's visibility mm. and there's and there's um support and it's and and it means that they can also go deeper into some of these things than they would have done when they were presenting it for an entirely an exclusively non-jewish audience like right. now they get to be in dialogue with with people who might understand or reject it or or not you know but but they get to like it just gets to go that extra layer and that's yeah. so exciting to me and and it's so much of what i was seeing in la and I was really scared I would miss when I got here and, and, and it's there. Yes. Well, and it feels even more intense to hear. I love this. I love, I, I celebrate everything you're saying. And then it also doubly feels intense to me to think about just because we're in this tense political, geopolitical moment where, you know, I keep tabs on Europe because I'm European and, and there's a lot of, I, to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, being like out and Jewish, I live in Los Angeles, so it feels much, much more safe, but like being out in Jewish in Europe to me, I'm like, wow, that feels kind of intense. And that's just my American perspective. It could be, I could be off on that, but I wonder if there is, if there is that tension, are you aware of it? Do you think about it? I, I mean, I, I do think about it. And, and someone asked me the other day, you know, would you consider working in non-Jewish spaces? Because you know, I, I have the background to do that as well. And and I, and I it's something I, I think about and and I'm I would love to and also, you know, I, I it's it's not a nervousness, it's not a fear. It's a sort of who I like it's hard enough explaining who I am to a sort of American Jewish audience who have some vague understanding that women can be rabbis and right. women, you know, rabbis can work in organizations, rabbis can do this and that, but there and but but the perception and, and people outside of the Jewish world also get that to some extent mm. like you know they see clergy of all different types engaging yes. in areas that are outside the synagogue the mosque the church um and that's just not as normal here no matter your faith or your tradition that there's interestingly enough for for, for countries that don't have the strict separation of church and state it, yes. it's actually created more of a an interesting conservatism and a, and a sort of sense like it's always there therefore we don't have we, we're either in or we're out and if we're out we, we don't we no longer sort of care about what's going on inside there is this sort of underlying fear around anti-semitism but I also reject my own fear because I, like I hate I would hate to be a person who is defined by fear that by fear and and yeah. how they fear others perceive them and and how they fear um, you know, and, and how, how 
like I don't want to define my identity in relationship to someone else I want to define it in in a way that is joyous in a way that that is you know true to to what I think Judaism and what I think women and 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 other bodies and and the space that I occupy like is true to me and it's true to the community I want to build I don't want to build something because I'm scared of what mm. might be around the corner I want mm. to build what I think we need mm. that I think we need like our best response or at least my best response to anti-semitism is to build a, a healthy thriving Jewish space mm. and, and community and, and and help people find their own sort of healthy thriving Jewish sense of identity that is inclusive and um, aware of the world around and and is not going to let fear of you know anti-semitism prevent them from doing the work and engaging with the communities that they want to engage to I, I want people to still feel like they can be activists and that they can be invested in 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 making their communities better and changing it and and you know like taking the parts of Judaism which are which are so powerful both internally and externally and 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 sort of carve that path for themselves that that is like as I said is like transformative for them and for others that it that is defined by who they want to be in this world and the communities they want to find in this world and not by what someone else might say oh man so spacious thank you rose that's incredible thank you <laughs> i i realize that you're speaking in some ways what you're speaking really hits home for me in terms of the work i'm doing i hadn't completely conceptualized it like that but i'm like yes that's that's a big part of it allowing for folks to discover themselves within community the singular and the plural and the plural plural in the singular yes it both of those never, things. can never be separated yes. that's where we'll fall apart yes so how do folks find out more about you and organizations that you're working with off of this podcast? Is there anything, or do you also want to be like clandestine? But I'm curious just to elevate the organizations you work with in, in the UK right now. Yeah, so so I, I work for JDO3, which is a Jewish arts and culture venue in, in the UK and, and a community center. Um, so we always have things going on at jw3.org.uk. If you find yourself here, come support Jewish artists, some support you know programming of all sorts lots of great family stuff as well um i also am involved with wellspring um wellspring mikvah um amazing we we please uh if you're interested in reimagining ritual if you're interested in how ritual can be healing they are a fantastic organization to be part of they're also part of the larger global rising tides network which mm. is reimagining mikvah spaces all over um, the world specifically in North America um, so you can can check out what might be happening near you I cannot we haven't really talked about it but I cannot say enough things about how powerful mikvah is an experience for, for transformation and yeah a huge <laughs> I, fan I know you <laughs> also my my question is when I come to London this year, will I be able to get in a mikvah? Only if you want to do it in a disabled toilet, because that oh, is we the inclusive mikvah in, in the UK right now, which is why we have such a desperate need to, to build something beautiful and, and wonderful. Um, yes, it's in a disabled toilet. So you okay. definitely don't want to do that. But I will take you to the ponds or to yes, the we'll do a mikvah. <laughs> Let's go to we'll the ponds. Maybe down in, you know, Essex or, or 
Sussex or the coast. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, yes, we have a need here in Los Angeles for a mikvah as well. So there's mikvahs a brewing. We're we're working on it. Yeah. This is it's a big, I mean, I'm a huge fan of water as an element, as a very watery guy myself. So we're working on it. We're going there. It's gonna happen. I I will take you to the ponds and and also um to all the things I know you will find amusing. <laughs> Yes. slightly less highbrow activity i love it i love lowbrow love lowbrow rose thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you. this has been such a pleasure oh good is there any final thing you want to share with the audience even uh, just a good night from you on the other side of the listen to whatever marvel's doing go to whatever <laughs> marvel's doing you can't go wrong <laughs> do it for me because i can't be there I know. I know. I send you as my messenger to whatever he's up to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Well, this has been wonderful. For those folks who don't know what a mikvah is, you, I will link some notes in the show notes so we can learn together about what a mikvah is and more links for where we can find Rose, which is also very exciting. And we thank you both for listening to us we will catch you next week on the world of rex until then take care